still in our study of Matthew, will be there to the rapture. So uh, <laughs> we're, talking about, we're talking about the Herods in your life. Now, we're actually going to be talking about Herod the king, Herod Antipas. So we will exegete the, the text properly. But I also want to apply Herods to your life. Herods are evil. Herods could be people, situations, anything bad that comes into your life. That's how I want to make the application but that isn't exactly what the text is talking about, but you do want to have some sort of application for your life. So if you would, stand for reading of God's Word. I also want you to think about this. This is kind of a flashback in time. This isn't chronological. Remember, Matthew is not chronological. So he's thinking back. The, the, the author is thinking back at an event that happened in, in, in Jesus' life that he's going to have to deal with. We're going to pick up our reading in Matthew 14, 1 through 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he went and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and, and buried it and went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitude heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw the great multitude and he, he was moved with compassion with them and he healed their sick. This is the word of God. Our Father, we are grateful for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now that each heart in here will be prepared to receive individually from you a message that you have just for them. Speak to us today, Lord, things that you want us to hear in this text. Help, it to apply, help us to apply it to our lives and help us to be different because we've come in contact with the living God this morning. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the book of Matthew, the theme is Jesus is the promised king. We say this every week. We have a king that is coming, a king that will reign forever. We've been talking about parables and how parables are Jesus hiding the truth. And it happened with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the final rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel is set aside for a time, and we have this thing called the church age, where we are the bride of Christ. God's focus is on the bride of Christ, but he will refocus after we are taken out at the rapture of the church to his people, Israel. We are in that epoch of time. We had a couple parables last week that I want to remind you of. It was the parable of the treasure and the par parable of the pearl of great price. And, and again, there's different uh, opinions of what this means. But I really think it means that you're the treasure, you're the pearl of great price because it was so costly to purchase you by God. 
God sent his son into the world that you might believe and receive the gift of salvation. God gave his all for you. God became a man. And we talked about the hypostatic union. Now, that's going to come a little bit later. Not right now. But the hypostatic union where, where God becomes a man. God took on the nature. Jesus took on the nature of a man. He never, never, never gave up his deity. He said voluntarily, set aside the use of his divine privileges, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and that sort of thing. But he's always, always God. Then we had a great question that came up on our Sunday night home group. And I've never been asked this question before. Usually I'm asked, how do you know that Jesus is God? How do you prove the deity of Christ? And you can prove from Scripture fairly easily that, that question. But this was different. How do you know that Jesus is the God man forever in heaven? Does he still have man qualities in heaven? And I thought, wow, that is a great question. And so as I kind of stumbled around and back, you know, <laughs> kind of weighed my way through this, uh, I have come up, well, this, this is what I, what I think on this subject. So it was a great question. Remember, Jesus added his humanity to his deity. 100% God, 100% man. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it has to do with his departure and his return. In Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11, I'm not going to read this, but if you remember, Jesus is ascending into heaven right before his disciples' eyes. And this is, you talk about levitating, all the way up to heaven. I mean, you, know, you have these people that pretend they levitate six inches off the ground. Jesus goes into heaven and in the clouds, in the clouds. And they had these two guys show up and go, this same Jesus will return in like manner. And then we have in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, how Jesus comes back. He comes back in the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. He, was gonna, he went in the clouds, he'll come back in the clouds. He went up as a man, he comes back as a man. So that's first thing. Secondly, in Revelation 19, Jesus returns to defeat the armies of Antichrist on a white horse. He appears as a man. In the millennial kingdom, Jesus will reign as a king, as a man. He's still, he'll be God. He's the God-man, but he has that form, that corporeal form of a human. Jesus also is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, a king-priest. That is a physical form priest. In Revelation 21.9, Scripture says, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, we are the bride of Christ. In order for us to interact with our groom, which would be Jesus, we are the bride, he is the groom, he has to have a form like us, like us. I'm deducting here, but you can deduce from that that he would have a form like us. So in summary, if you've missed all the rest of it, the summary is this. Jesus is in heaven now, I believe, as the God-man. Jesus will return to earth and defeat the Antichrist as the God-man. Jesus will reign in the millennial kingdom as the God-man. In the eternal realm, the Lamb will dwell with his bride as the, as the God-man. So the hypostatic union, I think, was a permanent thing that Jesus gave up, or he took on. He took on this humanity. You talk about a sacrifice, that God would become like us. That is an amazing thing. But he did it for you, the pearl of great price the treasure. He did it for you. So, think about this. 
Oftentimes, people are mistaken about who Jesus is. Our world certainly is mistaken, and we know that Herod in this text is very mistaken about who Jesus is. Starts in verse 1 and 2. Herod is mistaken about Jesus. Hear what he says. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, that means there's four areas, there's going to be four ruling, there's four people ruling in, in Israel, heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead, therefore his powers are at work in him. So now when you think about Herod, there's going to, I'm going to give you a picture here in just a few minutes, you're going to see the Herod dynasty and you're going to see those other Herods under him that ruled later. But when you think of Herods, any of them think this, self-absorbed, all-about-me personality, evil, evil. And I want to suggest to you, and it's going to be blended in this talk, I think there are Herods all over this world. Self-absorbed people, power-hungry. We're going to be introduced, I want to introduce you to Herod the Great. He's the one that started the dynasty. He lived from... Uh, we have 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was the great builder. He's the one that built the temple. He is the one that built Masada. He is the one that built all the aqueducts and all the structures and all the beautification around Jerusalem. He was not a true Jew. He was an Edomite. To be more on that in just a few seconds. And he had nine wives, many sons, many sons. The four that I'm going to show you are, are just the four that became rulers. But he had many sons. And he is the one that, that slaughtered the infants in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 18, when the Magi came and says, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And when Herod heard that, he wanted no competitors. So he wanted to kill the baby that was born. Then from there came Herod Antipas. That's the person we'll be focusing on today. He's the Tetrarch. He's the ruler of the Galilean area. He wanted to be king but Rome would not allow him to be king. He was also selfish and deceptive and ambitious. He wanted to be the main ruler of the whole area. He didn't care about his brothers, as you'll see more in just a second. Herod Agrippa is, his, is, is, is a grandson of Herod the Great. He's the one that killed James. And then there's Herod Agrippa II. Now, you're not going to remember any of these, but just for completion, he's the one that tried Paul in Acts 25, 13. What you do want to know is that all the Herods had Edomite blood that'll come up on the screen in them, like their ancestor Esau, and they hated the Jewish people, are at enmity with the Jewish people to this day, hostile to the Jews. Now, Herod Antipas, he's the one that we're thinking about today, was in charge of the Galilean area again. That's where Jesus did two-thirds of his ministry. There was a lot of conflict between Herod Antipas and Jesus. Now, I want to show you this overhead here of Herod the Great. He started this whole thing. He had these kids out of all these nine women. These are the ones that were selected to be rulers. Herod Antipas is the one that we're thinking of today. Philip is also germane in this and that his wife was stolen by Herod Antipas. Herodias is her name and he's, Herodias is looked at it in Scripture not as Herod's wife, but Philip's wife. Scripture tells you the truth. From this guy comes Herod Agrippa and the first and Herod Agrippa the second. So that just gives you a little background on the Herods. There's a whole bunch of them. The one we're talking about today is Herod Agrippa. So what is bothering Herod Agrippa? 
Because he's concerned that, John, that Jesus is John raised from the dead. And I want to suggest to you that even this evil man with a seared evil conscience still has a conscience. No matter how evil somebody gets, they still have a conscience. And what goes along with that evil conscience, usually with all of these despotic rulers, is fear. Fear that someone's going to take their kingdom. Fear that someone's going to take their place. Remember Herod, the great Herod, Herod the Great, was afraid of what the Magi had to say, that there's a king born in Israel, that someone was going to take his place. So they also have to deal with fear. So remember this, Herod was experiencing an uncomfortable moment in his life, orchestrated by God as he is being convicted by the Spirit of God. And I want to suggest to you that conviction of God in the hearts and minds of people is the plan of God, is the plan of God. And I'll mention this plan of God several times in this talk. In verses 3 through 5, now, John's going to do something very brave and courageous. He's going to challenge this despotic ruler, this evil man, Herod Antipas, in his lifestyle. So, starting in verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, watch this, his brother Philip's wife. Scripture tells you the truth. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude, more fear, because they counted him as a prophet. So, Herod Antipas, now listen to this. Herod Antipas, he's ruthless. He lived in fear. In Mark chapter 6, verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just, holy man and protected him, let that word resonate, protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So there was a time when John met with Herod. They, Herod loved the interaction that they had. So there was ministry going on there, even when he's bound and in prison. But notice that word, he protected him. Who do you think he protected him from? Herodias. Herodias, Philip's wife, that Herod stole. Mark 6.18 says, Herodias held it against John and wanted to kill him because he, confront, he had the guts to confront the king about his lifestyle. In Matthew 14.5, Herod feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So there's lots of fear. I want you to think about people like Stalin. Think about people like Hitler. Think about people like Putin. They have their power-hungry people, but they still have in the background fear that they're dealing with. They have no God. They have no God. See, your fear is assuaged when you have a relationship with God. Our fear is assuaged right now, even though they're talking about tactical nuclear weapons in Russia and what that could end up doing. Our fear is assuaged because we know a God is in control, not those guys. Now, I don't know if there's going to be tactical nuclear weapons done there, but I know how this whole thing ends. Jesus is coming back. It's just that simple. There will be an Antichrist. There will be a 10-nation confederation. There'll be all this stuff happening. But we know who wins in, in the end. You have studied prophecy. So when you hear those fear mongers on TV about, about the tactical nuclear weapons and destruction of the world, and this is going to be it, this is the end, no, no. You know, right away, just take a hard stop, no. 
That's not how it's happening. That's not how it's happening. Face to face. Now look at the guts of the man of God. Look at the guts of the man filled with the Holy Spirit or a woman filled with the Holy Spirit, how they will confront their world. Face to face, John challenged Herod's life and his beliefs about taking his brother's wives. And again, this takes courage, guts, Holy Spirit endowment for you to be able to do this. And he says this right straight to his face. It is unlawful for you to have here. See, Herod wants what he wants. They get what they want. And he's kind of the chief of the four areas. So, so Herod Antipas is bullying his brothers, taking whatever he wants. Look at Leviticus 18.16 says this. You shall not, this is Hebrew language, but I'm going to tell you what it means in just a second. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Uncovered nakedness is a euphemism in Hebrewism for sexual relations. Noah had his, had his, his, he was uncovered, his nakedness was uncovered by his son Ham. Some people say, well, that wasn't a sexual issue. Oh, yes, it was. That's what the Hebrew indicates. I'm not going to go into what it was now, but it was an interesting story. So John spoke the truth, even when it was unpopular. John spoke the truth. And I want to tell you, folks, you know that it's always unpopular to go against the grain. It is hard to speak the truth. It is hard to speak the truth in a culture that's running from the truth. And it was unpopular and it was dangerous for John. Now, remember what Oz Guinness said. We shared this last week. The truth dispels the lie. That's right. And remember, he said this also, truth does not yield to opinions, doesn't care about the polls. The truth is the truth. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't yield to fashion, number, or office, position, or power. Truth speaks the truth. And John spoke the truth, and it cost him, ends up costing his life. In verse 3, we read, Herod had laid hold of him. Look at this. This is violence. This is violent language laid hold of John, bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. This is violent. This was a violent act. John suffered for being truthful. But I want you to hear this. It was part of the plan. It was part of God's plan. Folks, there's people all over the world today that are standing for their faith, telling the truth, suffering for their faith. It's part of the plan. Just because we have been sheltered here, you know, if you come here, you know what we are to expect in this, in this country as we jettisoned God out of the culture. We can expect this to happen. Stuff can happen here. The world does not like your truth one, one bit. But when you think about persecution, this is not a happy, happy, happy thought. This is not something that I'm, I'm just, oh, goody, we get to suffer. No, I don't think that's really a rational way that we look at it. But we do have the opportunity when it comes to stand for our Lord. And remember, it won't be you standing. You think you're going to stand? No, no. It's God in you. It's the Holy Spirit in you at that moment giving you the ability to stand. Remember, Jesus said, don't even think about what to talk about. I will give you the words at the time. So you don't have to be ruminating, going, oh, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? No. You take a rest. And you trust God at the time. 
we have an example of three men in Scripture that refused to bow to a king. The, the king was Nebuchadnezzar. The king had made a statue of himself, an idol of himself, and he paraded it through Babylon. And he demanded that all the people bow before this statue. And you had three Hebrew men that said, no, we cannot bow. We will not bow. Nebuchadnezzar gets these three guys and says, you bow or you go into the fiery furnace. You will die. And this furnace is just cooking and it is fearful and it is scary. And I want you to hear the words of the men of God. You've heard it before, but it's great words. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And I think they're thinking one way or another, we're going to be with God. One way or another, we're going to be with God. And then they add this, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Folks, this is called Holy Spirit guts. That God gives these guys the power at the time to do the impossible. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. You know the story. One like the Son of Man is in the fiery furnace, and they are saved. John wasn't saved. Sometimes the outcome is amazing. And sometimes the outcome, it's still amazing, but it's not the way you thought it was going to be. See, John's going to heaven. That's his greatest moment. He's going to be with Jesus. Now, what we see next is Herod makes an unwise oath. Verse 6 through 8. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, can you imagine the Herodians? Full of evil, can you imagine this birthday party? The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Now, what is, who is behind all of this stuff? Satan. Now, we know that there's enough crud in us that we can murder Remember, Jesus said, from within, out of the hearts of man, come sexual immorality, theft, murder, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these things come from within and make a man unclean. What Satan does, he exacerbates our already depraved nature, putting to the minds, do this, do this, do this. We already want to do it in our fallen nature. Herod already wanted to do it, but Satan is just there egging it on. The enemy uses sexual lust to entice Herod. And remember, the Herodians had low morals. This is not a moral group that I just put up on the screen. This is an immoral group of people. Licentiousness, which means unprincipled in sexual matters, is a, is a predominant characteristic of the Herodians. Of the Herodians. So Herod got caught up in the moment, and he makes an unwise oath to give Salome. This, this dancing girl has a name. We get it from Josephus, who identifies her, the dancer, whatever she might ask. Salome then turns to mom, turns to Herodias and says, hey, mommy, what should, I, what should I ask for? 
And this is Herodias's chance. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, can you imagine how people must have felt? I mean, that is a gruesome, gruesome request. Gruesome. Herodias hated John for confronting her lifestyle. Does that sound familiar? Whenever you confront someone else's lifestyle and beliefs, that is the antithesis of Christian belief, they don't like you. They might even hate you. They really want to kill you. Thankfully, they don't most of the time. Hate led to murder. I want his head. And again, who was lurking in the background, instigating, pushing to get his way? Of course, the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, think about Herod. See, if you're a Herod, you're prideful. He can't back down. He's given an oath, and it's in front of all these people. All these people have heard the oath. Now he's got to carry it through, or he's going to lose face. See, the most important thing to a Herod is that they look good. They look good amongst the populace. Though their hearts are evil, oh, that they look good. Herods always want center stage. Herods are king babies. King babies. They want to dominate. And I want to suggest this to you. There's Herods all over our lives. But it is very difficult to be in a relationship with a Herod. It is very tough. Very tough. In 9 through 11, again, Herod can't lose face. And the king was sorry. And nevertheless, because of his oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sat and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter. This is astounding to me. Brought on a platter. And given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took, took away the body of Jesus. That's another text that I'll get into. But the picture is gruesome. Now, I'm, I'm picturing this platter with a cover on it. Okay, I'm not thinking that they're parading this bloody head through all the birthday party. That's going to make people a little disturbed. But when it's given to Herodias, it must have been, must have looked like, oh, yeah, that, that's right where I want this guy. Dead, dead. Now, look, at there's three people responsible for this death. It's not just Herod. Salome, Herodias, and Herod. The first two, Salome and Herodias, cannot hide behind Herod did it. Herod did it. No, no, they're complicit in this murder. When Herods enter your life, and they will. I'm, when I talk about Herods, remember, I'm thinking about people, situations, that are difficult and tough and that sort of thing. When Herods enter your life and disturb your tranquility, you're going to think about something. You're going to think, what are you doing, God? Now, even the man of God, even John the Baptist experienced this. John the Baptist, who had the Holy Spirit in the womb, in the womb. He's one of the few in the womb. He's wondering about this. What are you doing, God? And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 3, you read these verses. Now, when John had heard in, in the prison the works of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the things that Jesus was doing to demonstrate that he is Messiah, unquestionably, he sent two of his disciples, these are two of John's disciples going to Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou he that, that should come, or do we look for another? Now, what is happening to John? The th same thing that happens to any one of us under the right pressure and the right stressors. 
He's doubting. He's doubting. That is exactly right. What, what's happening. The right pressure at the wrong time, and anyone can doubt under the duress, grievous life situations. Now, for John, John knows the Old Testament. John knows Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Hear what the prophet says about the Messiah. Heal the broken, Messiah would come, he would heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Now, who's in prison? John's in prison. <laughs> and he's wondering, if you're the Messiah, why in the world am I still in prison? And by the way, I'm your cousin. We know each other. We're, we're best, we're buddies, okay? Why am I still here if you have the power to free me? That's what I think is going on here. So John's disciples ask Jesus this question, and notice Jesus. He doesn't say, yes, John, I'm the Messiah. Just go ahead. You should be leaving me. You should have known this by now. He doesn't do that. Jesus, in his just amazing way, says these words to these disciples who will take it back to John. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, and on it goes with fulfilling messianic prophecy. Yes, John, I am the Messiah. That's what he's saying without saying it. And I bet this gave John the encouragement to just move forward in this awful situation. Now, there's something that you need to remember. Important point. This is, whenever you have anything happen in your life, this is the point. God is always at work around you. Remember, you are the pearl of great price. You are a treasure. God loves you implicitly. Even when you feel forgotten, God is still there. And listen to this. John died on time. John died as God ordained. As gruesome as it was, so will you. Folks, it's part of the plan. God has a plan for your entrance, and God has a plan for your exit. It is ingrained. It is the way it is. Our assurance and our peace and our strength will come from God at the time. Now, how many people worry about dying? I mean, it's, it, we're, it, it's, it's ubiquitous. That means worldwide. It's all over the place, okay? People worry, worry about dying, worry about dying. Oh, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get that. You know what we learn from this? Our assurance and our peace comes from God at the time. Don't worry about this before the time. Remember, it's the plan. God has a plan for your life, beginning to end. You join him where he's working. You engage him, but there will be a time when we move on. Now, Salome, Herodias, and Herod were all tools in the hands of God to accomplish his plan. Think about Jesus. Think about Jesus in Acts 4, 27 and 28. Jesus was fulfilling God's plan when he died. It says this, Truly in this city, there were, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Watch the nemesis. It's going to be Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, and Israel, all guilty. All guilty. All complicit in the death of Jesus. Although it was the Romans who put him to death. It was all these, all these characters. Whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate 
along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. Remember, it's God's plan. Mankind thinks they're carrying out their plan by killing the Son of Man. But God, God of heaven, the second person of the Trinity, it's God's plan for the Son to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. God is not capricious. He is not whimsical. God always, always, always has a plan. Remember that. Now, think about this. And let me get done with this before you start getting upset. Jesus in his humanity did not know the plan. Now remember in Luke, Jesus grew in wisdom in knowledge and stature and that sort of thing. He grew into who he was. He was truly a human being discovering on his journey who he was. Always the God man, but is being revealed. There were certain things he didn't know while he was here. And I will show you why I believe that. So, verse 12. Then his disciples came, that's John's disciples came, took away the body, buried it, and then they go and tell Jesus. They went and told Jesus. So, remember John the Baptist. He had a huge following. He was extremely popular. He was way more popular than Jesus, particularly at the beginning of his ministry. But he was the forerunner. What does that mean? He was introducing the people and the nation to the Messiah who was coming. Messiah is coming. He is the true Messiah. It says this in John 1, 7. This man, speaking of John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness to the light. He was not that light, but came to bear witness of that light. That is, now hear these words, this is John 1, 9, the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. All mankind has access to the light of Christ. We must remember that. That's what the scripture says. Now, it's difficult for us to see Jesus not knowing something. Remember, while he was here, he was the God-man, the God-man. Remember the kenosis. We talked about this last week, the theological term, the voluntary non-use of his divine attributes. Always God voluntarily set them aside. Remember Philippians chapter 2. You're at a... This is, this is extemporaneous, so get ready for butchering job here. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That making yourself nothing is the kenosis. He emptied himself and became a servant. He was a bondservant of his father. He always did the will of his father while he was here. Gives us an example. While we're here, we're bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to carry out the master's will. So, it is difficult to, to, to understand this, but it is what it is. And remember, it was part of the plan for God to become a man. It was part of the plan. Mark 13, 32 will give more clarification on this. Now, this is very stunning. And most people have stumbled over this through the epochs of time. But of that day and hour, speaking of the second coming of Christ, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, some people believe that this is, this is 
Jesus talking about uh, the Jewish wedding feast and the son goes and prepares a place for, for his bride and the father releases the son at an unknown time. That could have something to do with this, but I think it's greater than that. Jesus knows now. Why do I say that? In John 17, 5, Jesus prayed for his glory to be returned. What does that mean? His godness to be returned. His absolute stature in heaven, equal with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, returned. Returned. Watch what it says. O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world. He's going back to who he was before the world. He is now seated in heaven. Jesus knows the plan now. There's nothing that the God, isn't there, there's a double super secret in the Godhead between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He knows everything. Their triune unity. The plan was being revealed as he lived out his life, just like you and I. We live one step after another. One step after another. God knows what is best. We take one step after another. Sometimes you realize the plan hurts. It's grievous. Jesus experienced this firsthand. Jesus was rejected by his family, by the nation, by his friends, and he even experiences death, the death of a friend. Jesus is experiencing the crud of this world. Jesus knows pain. He knows what you're experiencing. And he shows us how to deal with these moments that come into our life when we wonder, what are you doing, God? Watch what he does in verse 13 and 14. When Jesus heard it. Now, I bet Jesus was disturbed. See, death even disturbed Jesus. Remember, he wept when Lazarus died. Now, he wept a lot because of, of everybody, what's going on around him and that sort of thing. But there's still this sense of grief. Because Jesus, the creator, knows this need not have been. Mankind didn't need to go down this road of sin and the fall and that sort of thing. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place, place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion by them and he healed their sick. So, whenever something comes into your life and you don't know what in the world's going on, there's a code for this. It's called 911. 911 Jesus. 911 get a home alone with Father. 911 get alone with God. Find your quiet place. Find your quiet place where you meet with God. Jesus did this often. It doesn't say he's withdrawing here specifically to meet with God, but he did it often. This was his pattern. Hopefully you have a pattern in your life that you have established a place and a time that you can go to as your place with God. You can do that anytime. You can say little Nehemiah prayers all the time. This, these are legitimate prayers. But there should be a place in your life where you meet regularly with God. And that is where you fall on your face before God and you catharse, you cry out to Him, and that's where God meets you. Right in the place of your need. You bond with Jesus. You experience the presence of God. The plan, hear this, may include the wilderness. Now, you've heard about wilderness journeys and this sort of thing. 
I have a picture for you. This is A.W. Tozer, and you've seen this before. It's very popular here. It is doubtful that God can use any, uh, any man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, A.W. Tozer is quoting this. I think he got it from this next guy. Oswald Chambers, 1917. He, was, he, he died in 1917. Before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. Sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? He said it first. You know, this guy was a, was a pastor. He died at age 43 from appendicitis. He, he did not want to, you know why he died? He did not want to take up a hospital bed or a surgeon. There was a battle going on in Gaza and British troops were getting killed and he did not want to take up a bed that could go to a soldier. And he died from simple appendicitis. The surgeon could not operate in time because he kept putting him off. Interesting story about Oswald Chambers. But think about the wilderness. The wilderness. In the wilderness, what do we learn there? What do we learn? It is the wilderness that our lives are changed from a self-focus to a God-focus. You know this. You know this if you've been here any length of time. It is in the wilderness that God shapes us and molds us. See, the wilderness is not fun. The wildernesses can be brutal. The wilderness is difficult. It's hard. It's in, the, it's in the wilderness that I release all the grasp of this world. It's where I take all of my burdens and I say, I can't anymore, God. I can't carry this. And where you transfer your burdens onto him. Where you can now finally come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is where this actually takes place. This transfer. It is in the wilderness where the world dims, its glitter diminishes, and, it, and God becomes preeminent. That is what the wilderness is all about. Tony Evans has this picture here that he, I want to share with you. One of the purposes of the wilderness is for God to show you that he is God. I will trust in the Lord until I die. Richard Farmer. I will trust in the Lord until I die. You actually carry this out once you've been in the wilderness. And I don't think the wilderness can be avoided. Every human, every Christian will have some sort of wilderness experience. The misery of the moment. Now, I want you to think about something. In the wilderness, you feel forgotten. In the wilderness, you feel like you've been abandoned. In the wilderness, you feel like there's no place to go. Now hear this, be encouraged that in all circumstances in life, especially the wilderness, the Lord is with us. Be encouraged there. Hebrews 13.5 gives us an absolute truth. The writer of Hebrews says this, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And you know what that means in the Greek, don't you? Five times. Never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Your God has engraved you on the palms of his hands. Your God knows you intimately. He knows right where you are in the midst of the wilderness. All I want to do is get out of the wilderness as quickly as I possibly can. So just yield to him. <laughs> that kind of helps get out of the wilderness. Jesus withdrew to a place, and folks, we want to withdraw and be with him. Closing thoughts. 
John, now think about life. Think about your life. You think that if you do everything perfect and everything right, that you're just going to have just the most great, wonderful life ever. I think, I think you have a better life because you obey God. But there's no guarantees here. There are people in the will of God living in Iran right now persecuted. In North Korea right now persecuted. In Afghanistan running for their lives. No solace, no hiding place there. Afghanistan was the second fastest growing Christian nation in the world until the great pullout, the great debacle. And now, it's, it, now they're just running for their lives, trying to survive from moment to moment, day to day. John the Baptist did everything right. He introduced the rebellious nation to, to the Messiah. He paved the way for Jesus' ministry. He confronted the evil of Herod, and he ends up in prison with his head lopped off. In a fallen world, folks, you know it, I know it. Anybody that has any sense whatsoever knows that crud happens. I don't care how much word faith you might believe, crud happens. It's part of the human experience. We live in a, you can live an exemplary life than the crud, and no one escapes it. Now think about this. Your fame will not allow you to escape it. Your money will not allow you to escape it. Crud's still going to come in your life. You cannot buy your way out of the crud. It's part of the human experience. Just ask Bill Gates. Ask Klaus Schwab. Ask Donald Trump. Ask Putin. Ask Biden or Pelosi. Ask Tom Brady. Ask Michael Jordan. These people are, have all kinds of power and position, and they still live in this crud called Earth. We all experience it. And, I, and when the mud and the crud comes into your life, learn from Jesus. When you get carpet bombed with crud bombs, you run to the master. You run to the master. Now, we must acknowledge something here. There's a reality here that we have to deal with. God allowed Herod to throw John in prison and eventually be beheaded. That's not the Christian message today. The Christian message today is God's always going to free you. It's always going to be great and wonderful. The Christian message today is you're going to prosper. You're going to have health, okay, health and wealth. Now, again, I believe all of that life is better with Jesus. I believe he takes care of his people. But, folks, there's also reality that bad things happen. And you must hear about this. John's purpose was completed. God's plan was to take him to heaven. Now, that was John's greatest moment. It was grievous to Jesus. He withdraws. Death is always grievous. It's separation. It's the sadness of that moment, folks. That's a reality that we must deal with. We weren't meant to die. We experience the sadness of separation at death. But we have the joyous knowledge of knowing that is temporary. That is temporary. One of these days, we'll all be home safe and secure. That's what you want to remember. Now, I want you to think about this as we make application for this. Herods are all over the place. Now, would you agree with that? There's Herods all over. There's Herods at your work. There's Herods. There's definitely Herods on I-94. They're, they're all over I-94, just all over the place. You can agree with that. Good. Okay. <laughs> Herods are all over the place. They could be a person. They could be a situation. But if they're a person, Herod's disdain Jesus. Herod's disdain the truth. 
disdained being exposed for who they are. And Herod's will do anything possible to eliminate any and all who oppose their will. Herod Antipas had no problem killing his wives. He had nine wives. One of them got out of order. She's gone. Or his umpteen kids. He would kill them with impunity. Any threat to his power. Herod's want things their way. And I want you to think about our world system today. I believe this. Herod's are running our world. Remember, God, Jesus said, Satan is the ruler of this age, this period of time. Herod's presently cannot do all that they want to do because of the restrainer. Now, you know, because you are good Calvary Chapel students, who the restrainer is. But you guys on the TV or wherever you're watching this, you might not know. It's the Holy Spirit-filled church who restrains evil in the world. And guess what? Herods hate the restrainer. The true church, not the phony church, not the, not the church that's blending, the church that's just going along to get along. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's the true church. There's the restrainer always rocks Herod's boat, and he doesn't like it. Herod's never want to be accountable. The restrainer will speak the truth. Don't buy into the lies of a Herod 